I first understood the visceral power of music as a little kid. And I've got a lot of stories about this, but one in particular stands out. My parents would occasionally buy these inexpensive Time Life LPs at, of all places, the grocery store. The greatest hits from composers like Gershwin and Bernstein, Tchaikovsky, Beethoven, Bach, and Mozart. They were all beautiful, but my favorite by far was Aaron Copland's greatest hits. I was particularly moved by one particularly particular moment in his ballet, Appalachian Spring. The already passionate music quickening and swelling to the point that I would just be overcome, overwhelmed by the beauty of it. Every single time. Sometimes I'd listen through my ginormous headphones. It was the 60s, so they were big then. But I'd listen to that one brief passage over and over and over again. The accelerando and crescendo expressing something for which words don't do the trick. It's something you must feel. Another advantage of having spent hundreds of hours wearing, wearing out those albums, is that I learned, again by feel, the power of symphonic form to craft a story. The readings from Romans over the past several weeks strike me as a kind of theological symphony. If you know symphonic form, you know that in order to truly grasp a particular movement, it's essential to hear it in the context of the entire masterpiece. In a similar way, the third movement of this symphony, which was this week's epistle reading from Romans 6, makes sense only if you hear it in the context of the entire masterpiece, particularly the dramatic, if not overwhelming, crescendo of grace that precedes it chapter 5. In this case, you don't want to miss any of the light motifs on sin and grace and justification and sanctification that carry over from one movement to the next and are what leads us to the absurd rhetorical question that forms the opening bars of the third movement. In the first movement, Paul begins in a major key. The unbounded reach of the gospel that quickly turns minor as he juxtaposes the just demands of God and the sinfulness of mankind. You see these major lifts and minor falls all over Paul's reign. We've read these passages over the past few weeks. In Romans, uh, it begins in Romans 6, 1, 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as, as it is written. The righteous will live by faith. And then in Romans 3, 21 through 26, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because his forbearance, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So Paul begins this movement with indescribably good news, making it clear that anyone can be brought into the into right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. As he stresses the limitless nature of the gospel, telling us that salvation is available in 1.16 to the Jew first and also to the Greek, also known as the Jews and everyone else. The gospel is utterly without geopolitical borders or racial or social distinctions. It's good news for everybody. The gospel is utterly without these borders. And Paul also, though, quickly makes clear our common standing, <coughs> draws attention to our common condition, sin. He says in 3.23 that, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin puts all of humanity on the same page, revealing that our relationship with God has been broken. And this fracture creates a crisis, because cut off from God, we're destined to die. As Paul makes clear a little later, the wages of sin is death. But the good news of the gospel is that instead of death, God acts in Christ by grace to justify and redeem anyone who puts their faith in him. Our justification and redemption is a gift of grace, totally unmerited and unearned. In fact, grace is opposed to earning. But why does God act? God acts in Christ to demonstrate his righteousness, his holiness and justice. Holiness, in fact, that demands justice. In the cross of Christ, God shows himself to be utterly just because the penalty demanded by the law isn't swept aside or removed, but paid for by Christ. But in the cross, he's also the justifier, the one who himself provides the means of justification and declares people to be in right standing with himself, the Savior of all who trust in Jesus. The cross is where justice and justification meet. That's the heart of the Christian faith. And it's what the therefore in Romans 5.1 is therefore, as it introduces the second book. Romans 5, 1 through 8 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, 
knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul begins chapter 5 with a stunning affirmation of the believer's objective standing before God. The declaration that justification is already complete. Therefore, since we have been, past tense, justified by faith, hard as it is to imagine, by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, we've been justified and declared righteous by God once for all time. There are two results of this justification. Verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 2, we have the hope of sharing in the glory of God. In other words, we can enjoy peace in the present and hope for glory in the future. It's both now and not yet. In our present life in the world, we live by faith under the rule of grace, enjoying peace with God while not yet experience the fullness of glory that is our ultimate destiny in Christ. The counterpoint in this passage comes when Paul reminds us that Christians not only rejoice in the hope of future glory, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. The world we live in, this provisional world in which sin and death have been dealt a mortal blow, but still rage on until the end of this present age, is a reality. And it affects every part of creation. Uh, you don't need much convincing of that reality today. But for the people of the God who is redeeming all things unto himself in Christ, even suffering is a means to a redemptive end. Suffering produces endurance, which leads on to character and ultimately to hope, which doesn't disappoint. I preached a whole sermon on this a couple of weeks ago. Why? Continuing in verse 5. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and has been given to us. This then plays on to one of the, those magnificent passages where the entire gospel seems to be concentrated into just a few words. Romans 5, 6 through 8 encapsulates the whole sweep of God's grace in the justification of sinners. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for us, the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God acted while we were still weak, when we could do nothing to help ourselves. Christ's act on our behalf isn't something in which we cooperated in any way because we couldn't. That's Paul's point in verse 7 where he emphasizes the utterly and entirely gratuitous nature of Christ's sacrifice. It's not as though we were basically good people who just kind of needed a little boost. If that were the case, Christ's death would be meritorious in a way that's unusual but not unique in human history. Because for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. Might. 
No. The redemptive act of Jesus was performed on behalf of those who were not only helpless, but entirely undeserving of help. In his death, Jesus accomplished what we could never do for ourselves by means of this unmerited and therefore holy, gracious, and gratuitous act. God demonstrates or proves his love for us. Eschatology is that part of theology concerned with death and judgment and future destiny. And going on in Romans 5, Paul recaps salvation history in light of its eschatological end. One man's trespass meant condemnation for all. One man's act of righteousness leads to justification and eternal life for all who believe. And now, because of that, where sin increases, grace simply abounds all the more. So Romans 5 dramatically, overwhelmingly crescendos to this kind of forte, fortissimo of, of a restless, resourceful, redeeming God bent on one thing for all humanity. In 521, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. All of which prompts the absurd question that begins the third movement, a moment in which Paul plays his own devil's advocate. He had just said in Romans 5.20, describing the glories of grace where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And now he asks, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? This is the primary objection to justification by grace through faith apart from works of the law. It seems to open the door to rampant sinning. In fact, it seems to invite more sinning because if God's, if, if, if grace is, if grace is God's act to forgive and accept sinners on the basis of Christ's righteousness, not ours, then wouldn't that grace shine all the brighter if we just simply kept on sinning? Think about it. The more sin there is, the more forgiveness there is. We've talked a, we've talked a lot about that through that gentle and lowly series. And the more sinning there is, the greater must be the righteousness of Christ to compensate for it. So doesn't this radical teaching on justification open the door to careless living and indifference to holiness? And Paul's answer in verse 2 is at first staccato, by no means, he says, or in King James Version, God forbid. And then he takes the melody in a direction I wouldn't have thought to go. He reminds us of our baptism. Baptism unites us to Christ so completely that we actually share in his death and resurrection. Our old self is crucified with Christ on the cross, and that death breaks the power of sin in our lives. We die with Christ and are buried with Christ. And as Paul writes in verse 4, we will surely rise with Christ to walk in newness of life. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, and, and it says in the Book of Common Prayer uh, as well, both of them understand baptism as an exodus. As Israel once languished in bondage to Pharaoh, so we languish in bondage to sin. As Pharaoh's power was broken when Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, so sin's power over us was broken when we passed through the waters of baptism. 
Israel came through the water into the wilderness, a place where Pharaoh no longer held power over them and where God traveled with them, but still not the promised land. Again, now and not yet. In the same way, we move through the waters of baptism into a place where sin no longer has dominion, where God is with us now, but where the fullness of resurrection life is still to come. This picture of baptism as exodus offers a critical connection to lived out sacramental theology. Baptism is not only an event between the individual and God, but also a union with Christ that connects the baptized with all of God's people in every time and place to a communion of saints. Baptism is incorporation into an entirely new family, the body of Christ, and thus into a set of commitments that may even call traditional family ties into question, which we uncomfortably read today in Matthew 10. Baptism isn't a magic spell that saves a person from peril in this world and the next. On the contrary, in binding us to Christ, baptism places us on the way of the cross. Baptism is an act that renders us, in verse 11, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul's logic here is that dead to sin and alive to God, the baptized one cannot remain in sin without betraying who they have become. It's unfortunate that we live in a culture of sound bites and bumper stickers, of gotchas, and the church isn't immune from them. You've, you've probably seen or remember this bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. That's huge. But really? Just forgiven? Is that all you are? Just forgiven. I have a friend whose pastor likes to tell them regularly that you are nothing but a bunch of wretched, black-hearted sinners. Really? Nothing but that? Is, is that our identity in Christ? Wretched, black-hearted sinners? You've heard people say, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Really? Just a sinner? No. Reject these. Repudiate them. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That is who you are. A saint who sometimes sins. Though sin is your default, it is not your design. That is not what you were meant for. Not that acts of sin have somehow become impossible for baptized Christians. Paul doesn't argue that, and our own lives make that painfully and abundantly clear. But rather, sin's rule was broken when we died with Christ in baptism, and we no longer have to be enslaved by it. The tyranny, dominion, and rule of sin has been defeated for us, and we can, for a lifetime, progressively move ever toward Christ-likeness. This is what's called progressive sanctification. Sanctification is a word you've heard me use a lot. It's, it's a theological term for basically all of Christian life. 
in its most basic sense, to sanctify something is to set it apart for God's use and purpose. Therefore, God's people are sometimes said to be sanctified because they're set apart for God's special purposes in the world, and that happens at the moment of salvation. But there's more to it than just a point in the past. When the New Testament speaks of salvation, sanctification, it speaks about it in three tenses, past, present, and future. In the past tense, I am saved, I am sanctified right now, that's the work of justification. In the present, I'm being saved, I'm being sanctified, I am, as Paul wrote in Philippians 2.12, working out my salvation. And in the future tense, in my death or at Christ's return, I will be saved. I will be sanctified. That's glorification. I'm using it today in the present tense, working out salvation in this life. There are different, differing views on how this kind of working out happens, different models of sanctification. And I'm going to go quickly through a few of them. These are massive simplifications, probably big oversimplifications of the big ones. Uh, so give me a, a modicum of grace here. Um, at least those found among American evangelicals. There's a view called the Wesleyan view that says basically that a Christian, by a second work of grace in their life after salvation, inaugurates progressive sanctification, and we can eventually grow to and live in a state of perfection. Christian perfection, not divine perfection. This is a state where one can live free from known sin and can perfectly love God and others. Methodists fall into this view. And I don't say fall into this view like they fall into sin. That's not what I mean. The Keswick or higher life movement basically says that when you become a Christian, you enter at one level of sanctification, and there's a point later with the filling of the Holy Spirit where you become a perfected, in the sense of complete, Christian. There are two distinct stages, lower life and higher life, and what they call entire sanctification. Higher life theologians teach that those who receive the second work of grace can live a more holy, that is less sinful, or in some cases, even a sinless life. The Christian Missionary Alliance Church was founded with this as one of its distinctives. And Dwight L. Moody and R.A. Torrey taught it. Those are names maybe some of you know. A similar view called Chaferian, <laughs> named after Lewis Ferry Chafer, came out of Dallas Theological Seminary in the early 20th century. It also sees a spirit filling as key a Christian is either spirit-filled or not spirit-filled and kind of jumps back and forth between the two throughout the course of their life. When you're spirit-filled, you don't sin, and when you're not spirit-filled, you sin. The second work of grace, the filling of the Holy Spirit, isn't a permanent thing, but a lifetime of jumping back and forth between these works of grace, being carnal and being spiritual. This is the view for most Baptists and was the one I was taught in the church where I grew up. And then Pentecostalism says that spirit filling, filling is one of those keys, but there's another key. 
spirit baptism, which is most often evidenced by speaking in tongues. All four of these views chronologically separate the time a person becomes a Christian from the time progressive sanctification begins. They're characterized by dichotomy. In other words, one state or the other, carnal or spiritual, justification and sanctification are seen as separate things. I respect these views. But I and the Anglican Church in North America and the Global Anglican Futures Conference hold the Reformed view, which was Anglicanism at its beginning. What fundamentally distinguishes the Reformed view from these other four is that it doesn't create two categories within the Christian life. Justification and sanctification are distinct but inseparable. Faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. All Christians are both justified and being progressively sanctified simultaneously. It's not either or, it's both and, now and not yet. God's grace through the power of his spirit ensures that the same faith that justifies also progressively sanctifies. This doesn't just happen, though. It requires effort on our parts. I love what Dallas Willard said. Grace is opposed to earning, which I already mentioned. It is not opposed to effort. And why this is, why it takes effort, I'm going to get to next week. If you charted it on a graph, it's gradual growth till the day you die, and it's only then that you reach entire sanctification. Sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. Sometimes there are big steps of growth, and sometimes there aren't. But overall, the trajectory is growth. And that growth is called progressive sanctification, a lifetime of three steps forward and two steps back, a lifetime of minor falls and major lifts. This means that the normal pattern of all of life for all disciples of Jesus is movement. Progressive growth in sanctification resulting in greater maturity and conformity to Christ in thought, word, and deed until we rest in death. And by the grace of God, we are playing a new movement in this symphony of grace, and it must play on to its glorious finale. Next week, we're going to talk about chapter 7. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.